I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Tom Peeler. And we love to watch. We love to watch The Unresolved Loss of a Child. Do you come from a land down under? I forgot that's what we were going with. Uh, It's a Disney classic. It's a Disney classic. (laughs) Hey, Tom. Hey, Peter. What's up, guys? You know, saying saying our names super close like that, it sounds like you almost said my name in full. (laughs) Hey, Tom Peter. Oh, Tom Peeler. Yeah. (laughs) His last name is Peeler. And yeah, it's his birthday. Can we we take a little moment and say that uh, Tom has decided to spend his birthday with us. I don't even like spending bir- my birthday with myself, uh, <laughs> so this is this is a big moment, and we're going to be talking about a movie that he loves since childhood. We all love since childhood, I think. Uh, Rescuers Down Under, which is our final uh, final entry in '90s nostalgia November, which and based on the the unexpected break that we took, uh, this will actually come out the first week in December, but it's still part of of that month. So, Tom, the first thing I want to ask you. How are you going to spend your last birthday on Earth? Because I'm assuming none of us are getting another one. Well, I spent it uh, getting a new driver's license and watching Rescuers Down Under. So that was the extent of my last birthday on Earth. Thanks, Trump. <laughs> so, so it was it was uh, two steps forward as a like very adult thing to have to do on your birthday. Like some bu- it's some bullshit that your licenses actually expire on your birthday. It was yeah. it was the worst. And yeah. I have to say, there's moments when when adulthood hits you and hits you really hard. And today, on my 28th year on this earth, I was sitting in the DMV and the most exciting moment of my morning was when I looked up at the wall and I saw a flyer that advertised that uh, Pennsylvania will no longer require registration stickers on your license plate after this year. And I was just like, yes, no more stickers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, oh, this is... This is what I get excited over anymore. (laughs) But before we get too far into this, uh, we know Tom very well, but many of our listeners also probably know Tom very well. But for those that don't, we want to give him a chance to introduce uh, himself, tell him a little bit about some of the stuff he's been working on. I know he's got a lot of things going on. So, Tom, why don't you help our audience get to know you with a segment we like to call Three Things About Yourself. Three things that you may not know about Tom Peeler, because you probably don't know who Tom Peeler is. So first and foremost, I'm a filmmaker. I, I've been a filmmaker for going on 12 years now, from little independent projects that I do with my friends, either for fun or like for, you know, with the ambitions of getting it seen and maybe distributed to working uh, on actual film sets and television sets. I try to like handle any aspect of it because I just love the form, the art. I love the art form so much. And very early age, I decided this is what I wanted to do in my life. So that's just what my life has been. I'm also a obsessive. I guess you could also just say in general, I'm just media obsessed. Uh, I love gaming. I love you know television. So I try to like make my life just celebrating the things I love, and I try to make sure that if well, that's what I do for a living. I run my own independent studio called Sycamore Street Studios, and when we're not producing films, we're doing kind of uh, fan culture pieces. We have a show about video game cutscenes where we examine them from a filmmaker's standpoint. We had our own podcast for a while. It's on hiatus right now because we all moved to separate areas. 
But uh, being a hardcore geek about the things I love, that's basically my life. Yeah, and those videos, we'll, we'll link we'll link to a lot of that stuff uh, that Tom just mentioned because uh, the only one I've seen so far is the um, is the video game YouTube videos that you put together. Uh, yes. And those are just fantastic. I, I highly recommend. Uh, we'll put links to the channel in the show notes, but definitely check those out. And I'm I'm assuming if his podcast and his uh, movies that you're making are as good as that, uh, I'm sure they are definitely worth your time. Thank you very much for that. So, Tom, what's really amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. What's really amazing uh-huh. is through uh, the Dissolve group. <laughs> you'll you'll get that? used to Peter. Hold on. Hold on. You'll get used to Peter uh, thanking you for just every statement that you say <laughs> and every every everything that you bring to the table he's he's very polite we love it uh but if it gets weird you know just use your safe word that we told you at the beginning of the episode <laughs> phalanges got it phalanges thank you for using that safe word um but yeah the uh, it's really it's really terrific that when we have uh creators on the show because it's kind of fun to get to see what people have been making and the dissolve group has gotten us involved with a lot of interesting people that uh write articles like dustin uh is pretty prolific at um writing and his brother also is a prolific writer as well and also a filmmaker and um involved in animation so it's kind of interesting when we get to meet uh all these people that we've been talking to and didn't really have a good background on and get to see their work and yeah a lot of it's really impressive i really like the the video game series that you you shared thank you thank you very much dustin uh dustin's a very a great guy i believe it was dustin i finished a horror like I finished a pseudo horror movie uh, in the spring and on the Dissolve Filmmakers page, he was one of the volunteers to look at an early draft of it with me. And uh, his notes are really great. The the foremost note was that he didn't really think it qualified as horror. And I was like, oh, he's an expert. I guess he's right. But uh, no, <laughs> Dustin, will not, Dustin will not fuck around. He will tell you exactly what he thinks of things. <laughs> So, for example, Dustin has said uh, that we shouldn't do the opening segments on the show. So, this is a really good transition to our opening segment uh, <laughs> that we're going to we're going to play a game which we haven't actually done in a while. We're um, I'm really excited. We kind of yeah. had a joke game last week, uh, and before that, we were doing the Spooktober stuff. And one of the weeks, we poured our hearts out about how scared and angry we were, which was a yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so we're going to play a game. It is Rescuers Down Under based. Uh, yeah. It's going to be Peter versus Tom. Okay. Um, I don't have a name for this. It's actually something we haven't done yet, but I could easily see it being a recurring one because it's super easy to put together, which is the number one qualifier to be a game on this show. Uh, and it's also uh, guess if something's real or not, which is also fan favorite type of segment. Uh, what it's going to be is I'm going to read you five. You guys are each going to get five questions. Uh, points are awarded if you get an answer right, much like other games. And what I'm going to ask you is I'm going to read a sentence and you have to tell me if it is a line from Roger Ebert's review of The Rescuers Down Under or a YouTube comment from The Rescuers Down Under trailer. (laughs) I already love this and I already cannot wait to see what other films you apply this to. I'm just going to say that. Go. Just go. (laughs) I'm I'm set. I'm sold. Okay. Who wants to go? Who wants to go first? (laughs) Tom, you go first. Okay. Thank you. Tom, YouTube comment. Of the rescuers down under trailer or a line from Roger Ebert's review of the movie. I love content of film. Ebert was quite the wordsmith, but I'm gonna go with YouTube comment. What if? Wait, hold on. What if? What if I tell you nothing is capitalized and there's no punctuation? <laughs> <sighs> 
<laughs> Did that change your answer? That was a highlight of his second published book. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still going to have to go with YouTube comment. Okay. You're correct. That is a YouTube comment. Um, you sounded you sounded disappointed that he was right, Aaron. Okay. What if, what if well, Alex Trebek was I know, like, well, yeah, yeah I, fine, fine, fine. Take the points. I know it's my birthday, but you don't have to give me ones that are that easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got some great news. Uh, all of these are really easy, and I didn't come up with a tiebreaker. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> the best kind of games. All right. Yep. Peter, YouTube comment or line from Roger Ebert's review Frank is on crack. Ha 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 would be a, That would be a YouTube comment. That is correct. That is a YouTube comment. Um, Roger Ebert, you know, sometimes like to take some weird tangents on his reviews and do them off format and tell some stories. Uh, this is not one of those. That is a YouTube comment. <laughs> it's a pretty good review of the movie, though, because Frank is definitely on crack. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> um, so all right tom it's one to one your turn okay various flight sequences make up a lot of the movie not only the soaring grace of the eagle but also the seagull's flopping ineptitude um this is a trick question that's actually a gene shallot review quote and i'm really offended that you would try to sneak <laughs> that in here like that i mean come on man uh i'm gonna assume that that lovely uh, eloquent sentence was of the late Roger Ebert. That is correct. Was that was that happier for you, Peter? I'm giddy right now. <laughs> Absolutely giddy. Did I, I sound hit, did I, I sound like there was enough joy in my voice as I congratulate him for getting that right? I need you to give me some game show chutzpah. Um, I think you're kind of you're kind of flat. You are no Drew Carey, Aaron. Yeah, that guy's excited about everything. Tom Peeler. You're up next. Oh, no, you, you just went. Tom Peeler, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, stand up. Uh, uh, do I have Are to? you standing? Can I, can I sit? I mean, you can lie, but that's a sin. We can tell in your voice if you're not standing. <laughs> My body is in whatever position you need me yeah. to be in right now. It sounds now. like your diaphragm is all crunched up. <laughs> I'm ready. Hit me. All right, Peter. Fake. Eagles aren't that big, but then again, this is Australia where everything is big and can kill you. YouTube. That's correct. God. Uh, it is two to Fake. two. <laughs> what? Who's, who's Fake. The, the Sherlock it's a Holmes fucking cartoon and animals are talking. Yeah, there's a much bigger, like, uh, an eagle being, uh, the eagle doesn't even talk. The eagle is closer to being a real animal yeah. than any other animal <laughs> in the movie. You don't get it, Peter. He had no problems with the entire civilization that uh, mice had built on our refuse. <laughs> God. And, and uh, uh, a seagull somehow getting uh, all the way across the world uh, by hitchhiking a ride on a cargo jet. Yeah. You know, medicine administered, yep. medicine administered via shotgun. Real. <laughs> Giant eagle. Whoa, whoa. I can't suspend my disbelief this much. Come on, guys. Yeah, that's not going to work for me. I'm going to need you guys to. I'm going to need you guys yeah. to bring in Neil deGrasse Tyson to ruin this movie for me. See, now this was only from the trailer, so it is very possible that this guy did not consider that maybe the kid was just really small. Oh yeah, maybe he's a mini kid. I'm I'm just pretty sure that yeah. this is somebody. This is somebody who, for whom uh, film critiquing is motivated by cinema sins and nothing else. 
That's gotta be <laughs> yeah. true. One hundred percent. Because that is, or he just hated the movie but didn't know how to articulate that. So when he saw everyone else posting all these positive things, he's like, "I'm gonna. I don't know how to ruin their day, but I got to think of something. What if I oh. tell him this is fake? Oh man, I, I need uh, something. They're gonna. They're gonna get over. Ah, uh, I know. If there's one thing uh, sir, uh, trolls on the internet uh, hate is people expressing joy. I wonder how much satisfaction he had when he finished when he finished that. Like, was he sitting on his keyboard with a huge grin on his face? Like, wait till these nerds find out eagles aren't that big. <laughs> they're gonna be so upset. That was definitely a, a trilby straightener of a moment for him. Yeah. Uh, he probably wrote it and then jerked off immediately. <laughs> <laughs> he slept really soundly that night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to like, be honest... I'm- the, the masculine aggression of that statement is really, really getting me going right now. Fake was all in caps, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fake. Yeah. Fake. Uh, no, no, it wasn't. But it's the only thing that had a capital letter. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's basically screwed. Which is like the all in caps for a YouTube comment. <laughs> it is two to two. Rigged. This is rigged. <laughs> this is rigged. Tom, your turn. This would be one hell of a story to tell your grandkids. There's there's this how do I put it? There's a category of you of comments of any ilk that are just so vanilla but they the writer clearly thought this is the funniest thing in the world and you just look at it and you sigh you go well that's what you thought. I'm pretty positive that's a YouTube comment written by somebody Roger Ebert. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. really? No, it's uh, no, of course not. No, it's a YouTube comment. Oh, yeah, it, you, it sounds you had me, like a, you had me for a second, but like it seriously sounds like something <laughs> somebody in their forties would write. Like they'll get a chuckle out of this because <laughs> this story is so <laughs> over the top. Your grandkids would be amazed by it. I mean, come on, he writes itself. Can you imagine? Sit down, grandkids. I'm going to tell you the story of the mice who flew to us. Like it doesn't work necessarily as a great bedtime story, uh, let alone like. He, the the comment is so so sincere it sounds like he's gonna tell your grandparents like almost like one one day when I was your age I watched a trailer for a movie I really liked <laughs> <laughs> that's an even better point he's not even talking about the movie he's talking about the trailer like you won't believe this two minute advertisement I saw once kids <laughs> blew my mind I watched a video on the internet it was amazing is this like oh some God. cyberpunk cavemen who like are are so technology starved that because like the whole system has crashed in a post-Trump <laughs> America uh, topical and uh, th- th- he's like and kids you could go on this fancy website and watch any advertisements you wanted everybody gasps at once <laughs> some of them were two minutes long two minutes and then all the kids teeth fall out because they don't have dentistry either um, and then all their teeth, times have changed. All right. Uh, Peter, you are up. It is three to two. Tom is defeating you right now. Although you we, you have not been asked an even amount of questions. So <laughs> everything could change with this next one. This sounds pretty um, rigged to me. I don't know. Peter, why does the villain have to be so noticeably dark complexion compared to all of the other characters? <laughs> is Disney aware of the racially coded message it is sending? <laughs> Oh, God. That's YouTube, right? That is Ebert. How? Wait. How was he so woke wait. so early? McLeach? <laughs> wait. Yep. 
Wait. McLeach is like obviously American. The villain in this movie is like the only obvious American in the movie. Well, actually, I'm going to read you. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to pull it up uh, because he actually goes on further than that. But I wanted to do the one sentence. Um, so as long as we're here. He thought McLeach looked dark skinned. Are you like seriously? Like McLeach doesn't even look tanned. Like. No, I know. It's, it is weird. Uh, the whole quote is there's one reservation I have about the movie. Why does the villain have to be so noticeably dark complexion compared to all the other characters? Is Disney aware of the racially coded message it is sending? When I made this point to another critic, he argued that McLeach wasn't dark skinned. He was simply always seen in shadow. Those are shadows. Those are shadows. Okay, this is actually a mistyping. But it's supposed to be those shadows are cast by insensitivity to negative racial stereotyping. Oh my god. He is so woke. That is nonsense. That is absolute nonsense. I mean, I know P- I know Roger Ebert had his moments of what the fuckery, you know, he gave Knowing four stars. He gave What Hot American Summer uh, one star. He wasn't a perfect man, but that's just reaching at its uh, – that's just that's, – that's just reaching like so hard. Why it's also so funny is that he actually says that he said this to another critic. And um, the critic's like, what are you talking about? He's just in shadows a lot. And he, I can't believe that line of like, yeah, the shadow of racial stereotypes. Like, that sounds like a Saturday Night Live sketch. I'm I'm looking at McLeach right now, and he is whiter than like the Hunchback of Notre Dame or anybody in yeah. any any Pocahontas movie. And the only and he's got like some shadow over his eyes, you know, like villains have. But like the rest of his face is as yeah. white as day, and he's like the most obvious American in the movie. He's voiced by George fucking Patton fucking C Scott. Like <laughs> he lives. Yeah, that's his Christian name. That's he lives crazy. in the in the desert, surrounded by abandoned mines. His his profession is I spend a shitload of time outdoors in the hot Australian sun. I mean, the fact that he's pasty white is actually more of a noticeable like inconsistency than the fact of assuming oh because of the brightness and contrast in this scene he must clearly have a dark complexion. It's like no, no. Yeah, he could be sunburnt and tan, like he's spending all day in the hot Australian sun. If he were, though, but like the thing is, he's clearly not. But if he were, that's how it would make sense. But it's just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Look at this little, little boy. He has identical complexion. Like, they clearly use the exact same color for his little, skin and McLeach's skin, because they're both supposed to be white people. The little Aryan Aust- Australian child with no Australian yes. accent? Yes. <laughs> yes, he has green eyes and blonde, blonde, blonde hair. All right, so let's we. I I should have saved that for my last one, um, because that that felt like the big gun. But we have two more each, so it is three to two. Um, I think Tom is not going to lose this game because I don't think there's any other uh, left left field uh, picks. But continuing on, Tom, I'm watching this because I'm eating pea soup. Oh, pea soup! I'm really disappointed you didn't read it like in the movie. I was really expecting a pea soup. But anyway, um, that's pretty good. YouTube. That was yeah. That was weird. <laughs> really spot on. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a soundboard? No. Can no. Can you play a flushing uh, noise? <laughs> no. I can try to. Is this uh, how you spent your birthday? Practicing. <laughs> I sat on my couch like I'm going to perfect every voice from Rescuers Down Under just to wow these guys. <laughs> it and worked. My, my girlfriend called to wish me a happy birthday, and I was like, "Not now. I gotta. I gotta practice." <laughs> Take a hike. Pull the hook. 
Yeah. So right. what point? What point? So you didn't. You did. You did, did you answer the question? Oh yeah, that's totally a YouTube comment. Some again, again, that a vanilla, a vanilla as hell YouTube comment. Like, well, surprisingly, there wasn't much racial uh, stuff on the rescuers down. Like most of the worst of YouTube was not present. I don't want the worst of YouTube. I just want commenters to be a little bit more creative than just like, ha, reference. <laughs> <laughs> They'll enjoy that reference. Yes. All right, Peter, you're now down four to two. This Four to two, Peter, this is your chance to come back. The bird is extraterrestrial. It comes from outer space, from some godforsaken antimatter galaxy, millions and millions of light years from the Earth. That is so... So Roger Ebert, during his uh, post-drinking, um, you know, DMT days, <laughs> like what, what the fuck? Like how high are you? I will say here. So here's why the structure of this game was bad. I picked one that automatically sent everyone to Roger Ebert's review of the movie for the midway point. <laughs> Regardless, we're gonna go with Peter's first answer. Roger Ebert. He's at two. Are you, are you going to be a dick about it, Aaron? Are you going to be a dick about it? Fine. <laughs> three. <laughs> um, fine, it's four to three. Tom, yeah, you know that thing on Jeopardy where contestants whined to Alex Trebek that they were close enough? Um, <laughs> that's that's a thing that happens on game shows. Uh, all right, Tom, your last one for your perfect score. Peter, 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 do you have a shovel I can borrow? Yes, because <laughs> I'm about to I'm about to bury you, son. <laughs> wow, we've never had anybody bring the heat like that. This is rescuers down under. This is serious. This is for this is for reals, yo. Yeah, this is the rumble in the jungle. Quickly down under, but it's about rescuers. It's a the 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 the, thun, the thunder from down under. The thunder from down under. Yeah. Yep, that's what this is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right it's customary in disney pictures for the major characters to have minor sidekicks and there are some delightful new characters in this movie well that that's ebert right that is ebert another thing i would say ebert was completely wrong about because while i like the main characters i would highly disagree that the sidekick uh, animals that are captured are delightful yeah, um, no, I agree. Uh, but yeah, it just, it's too structured to be a YouTube comment. I was just like, yeah, that's just yeah, I know. Ebert. Huh, huh this, this comment has a point. I think the next iteration of this, I got to like, it's going to be Ebert, but I'm going to take out random verbs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter, you have one last one so that he doesn't bury you. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. YouTube or Roger Ebert, years ago, I would have likely imagined something like this, only with a giant pterodactyl instead of an eagle. <laughs> I'm just, I can't stand these low tier people. It's just, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to say Roger Ebert. Yep, that's correct. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is It is obviously YouTube. I want to I, I want to pause on this one for a second, because in one sentence, I feel like we found out so much about this person. Who goes on? And post that years ago, so not right now, right now he would not have imagined something like this, but sometime in the near past he would have. I don't know if that's like a, he's trying to uh, diminish the movie's originality, like, oh, he could have also imagined it. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what that has to do with anything, but he wants everyone to know that he wouldn't have done a bird. If he had imagined it, which he did not. 
it would have been a pterodactyl. What kind of weird producer notes from the crypt are, are, is this person getting? Like, <laughs> like, what value does that have? Like, it's not engaging with. That's not even engaging with the work. You're like, eh, I would have preferred if this whole movie was uh, totally different and had dinosaurs and lasers and uh, some big old titties and uh, all the other things I like. <laughs> I like burritos. Uh, uh, I like days at the beach. Uh, uh, I like nice people, not mean people. They should definitely cut out this mean person. Like, what? What? What value does it have? That does sound like a heartwarming four uh, four quadrant movie. I'll just say that. But <laughs> what Peter just said is actually a Roger Ebert quote. <laughs> What's funny about that comment to me is that sounds exactly like the kind of things people who come out of the woodwork after um, a movie is a blockbuster success and claim they try to sue and claim like, well, I had this exact same idea, except one thing was different. You know what I mean? Like Rescuers Down Under. I came up with that yeah. years ago, except there was a pterodactyl. Everything else, though, totally my idea. But see, that's what's so funny about this comment. That would have made sense. But he's specifically saying he didn't imagine it. That, but he could, he would have at some point, and then it would have been this if he had imagined it. So it's not even saying that, like, I had this idea, big deal. He's saying that a past version of him might have been able to come up with a similar idea. You know, I was it, I was a confused that, teenager. I was going through my Australia pterodactyl phase. You know, everyone has one of those, and I probably could have done this. You know, it's not unreasonable. Like if you if you tried to graph this comment, it would look like Doc Brown in his wrecked uh his burned down office or lab house in Back to the Future 2 where he's trying to explain like how the different timelines work in parallel dimensions because there's just a lot to unpack. In well, these this comments. person weirds lives in some weird like alternate dimension dash Lovecraftian dreamscape where like <laughs> things he might have dreamed of possibly in a different dimension actually have value and weight on our current reality. Like what the fuck? Did, who? Okay, so like ideally, okay, so ideally, YouTube comments are communicating some form of information, right? Either to other people or to the person that's posting, right? So it's either like a review kind of thing or it's a reaction kind of thing so ideally it's a form of communication that provides information i don't know what information you're supposed to walk away from that comment with i just can't get over the back to the future analogy i just i want to see that scene play out now i want them to reshoot that scene Marty, <laughs> you don't understand because you stole the sports almanac rescue was down under now features a pterodactyl instead of a giant eagle <laughs> we have to go back marty <laughs> You don't understand, in this messed up 1985, you did not think of this. But in the real 1985, <laughs> you did think of it, but it was a pterodactyl. God. Um, all right, do you guys want to start talking about Rescuers Down Under? Hell yeah. Five second. I'm ninety this week. Sounds good. Boy saves eagle. 
uh, mice save boy. I want to tell that story to my grandkids. (laughs) (laughs) I would have liked it better if there was a pterodactyl. Yeah. 92nd recap is boy finds a giant bird as he's climbing a cliff face, uh, as all boys do. He falls off the cliff. The bird rescues him. They fly around for a while. They have just a good, good adventure. Uh, and then after he says goodbye, the eagle gives him one of his uh, feathers. And then the kid gets trapped in a poacher trap. The poacher ends up noticing the feather and says, hey, I want that bird because I killed the other one, the mate, the father bird. Uh, I'm just going to just kidnap this kid because that is going to be much less. That is going to cause much less repercussions for me than poaching. Uh, so he t- takes the kid, puts him in a cage. Uh, a mouse uh, sees the whole thing go down and alerts the Mouse United Nations. As a result, uh, Bianca and Bernard, the rescuers from the original movie, The Rescuers, uh, enlist Wilbur, played by John Candy, to fly to uh, Australia to rescue the kid. Yada, yada, yada. They meet up with other animal friends and eventually uh, McLeach, played by George C. Scott, decides to let the boy go to follow him back to kidnap the bird. That ends up being successful, but thankfully Bernard uh, saves the day at the end and proposes to Miss Bianca. And everyone lives happily ever after. Except the boy's mom. This is a big sticking point for me because (laughs) I was uh, I'm just going to get into it right now. And then we'll go and then we'll go to like our uh, our experience with this movie and what we thought of seeing it for the first time uh, for a lot for myself, like in 20 years. So at the beginning, they show the kid with his mom and then he goes out to go play and he gets kidnapped. And then later in the middle of the movie, when McLeach has the kid, they show because McLeach wants to make the the Rangers, the Rangers think that the kid is dead he throws his backpack into the crocodile river or whatever. And then the Rangers bring that, find that backpack and bring it to the mom. And the mom is understandably sad because her only child has been eaten by alligators. I remembered at the end of the movie, a um, reunion between the mom and the son that does not happen. (laughs) Instead, the boy flies off with his real friends, with his real friends at no point. Is there, which so, so here's my thing about it, which was just shocking to me. It's fine if you want to do that Disney and that kid movie thing where, like, the kid is basically – he's a kid only to relate to the main audience of the movie. Uh, and, yeah, you, you think he has parents, but they're never really shown or addressed on screen. So when he ends up in all this life-threatening danger, it doesn't give you the sense as, like, someone's kid is in danger. Like, it, it just feels like an adult uh, who can handle himself because they're the protagonist of the movie. When you pause your movie in the middle to show handing a mom a presumably dead kid's backpack, but then you never show them reuniting, it's so fucking weird. Why would you show that part? It it was bizarre. Well, yeah, the- hot take. I'm just going to throw this out there. What if – so the movie ends, as you said, with – Cody flying off on the back of Merhute, the giant golden eagle, into this dreamscape moonset skyline. And as you said, we never see him return to his normal life. What if the movie's trying to tell us Cody didn't actually survive the end? 
And that is him ascending to Australian Eagle Heaven. And he never goes back, but he's in a better place now where he's not going to be murdered by poachers. <laughs> well, as we learned from that YouTube comment, the bird is from a dimension of antimatter. <laughs> exactly. So it's very possible that he went back there. It took him so back. The bird is carrying his soul through the fourth dimension into <laughs> this other reality. That makes total sense. I, I I love internet fan theories. They're all they're always so um they always make so much sense, you know? They're so they're so elegant. I yeah. think it's very clear that Maruhute is a Christ figure. And <laughs> if you think about it, Rescuers Down Under is a tone poem about attaining, you know, that other level of being. I got a question for you guys. Is it kind of a Western? Uh, Kind of. Is it an accidental autobiography? Is Australia a character? So really, though, but did you guys, did, did, did that stand out to you guys? Because that was so, seeing this as an adult, I was like, holy shit. No, I agree. Why I would agree. you do that? It is very, it is a very stark thing that sticks out mostly. In, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have a, a cognizant train of thought right now. Uh, but no, I do agree with you. It sticks out. So it's sort of like, um, it's an inverse. It's sort of an inverse of the um, Close Encounters ending where like... <laughs> The dad just goes and leaves the kids and like just doesn't even turn back, just like goes goes to space and abandons his children to, you know, go. <laughs> it's sort of like that where like the movie is like an inverse of that where like a mo- the movie just says like the kid is on his own adventure. He doesn't need the rangers. He just needs some of his rodent friends to save him and, you know, a couple of birds. Th- th- that would be fine. Like I'd be fine with the movie him leaving home. You kind of see it as sort of a Goonies thing, like they're off. He's off on an adventure, or a Stand by Me thing. He's off on an adventure in the, the the woods. Like maybe his mom's used to him not coming back, but he always not coming back for a very long time. But he always comes back. That'd be fine. But they check back in with the mom a few yeah. times, and one of them is just her yelling the kid's name out into the outback, and one of them is her receiving the kid's bag all torn to shreds and shit. Like, yeah, yeah. If you let, if you make us, if you remind us that there's someone waiting at home for for him, you can't not return to there. Like, and you're also reminding us that he is a kid with parents, which yes. is the exact opposite you should do when you want to take when you want to make the kid a protagonist, but then take him on this dangerous adventure. Aaron, building on top of your feelings about this unaddressed plot point, um, I feel that there is a degree of the filmmakers assuming that we're just going to presume things happen after the credits roll, because not only do we not see code, do we not see Cody reunite with his mom? But so what I found really striking this time watching it was when McLeach takes Cody away from his compound. That's the last time we ever see any of the animal friends who all have distinct personalities and are all, oh, very, yeah. they're, they're all in very clear mortal danger because they exist in an underground compound in a batch of abandoned mines in the middle of the outback, the most dangerous remote isolated place in the world. So there's a there has to be a presumption that when Cody got back from being rescued, he went to the his mom, I'm alive, we have to go to the Rangers, 
because there's animals tied up. You have to presume that happens, but the fact that they don't show it leaves the Schrodinger's box possibility that he just left those animals to die because McLeach wasn't coming back. I mean, they would have died if McLeach did come back, but now they're going to die of starvation, you know, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Chained, to, chained to a fucking wall. It's fucked. We don't, if we had just had a shot of all the animals all of a sudden, like, you know, because they leave the keys in the room, right? Like, the, if we had yeah. a shot of like the key, the animal like s- somehow getting the keys and unlocking them, but being too slow to like help uh, Cody, like that that would be fine. But this hanging implication that the that these animals are just rotting away there. Also, the movie is is an hour seventeen minutes. It's leaving a tremendous catharsis sitting on the table. Yes, like there's nothing better than when a movie shows you shows you an oppressed. Uh, person or an oppressed animal, particularly an anthropomorphic animal, you know, shows them getting oppressed over and over and over again. And then at the end, you get to see them like rise up and like declare their liberation from the systems that oppress them. Like that's the best feeling in the world. And this movie just leaves that moment on the table. Right. And as you said, it's it's a very quick watch. It's there's no reason why they couldn't have thrown in that little bit. It could have been two minutes max. You know what I mean? It's it's perplexing. It's an hour, 17 minute movie. Yeah. Well, and they and they cut back to the eggs that Wilbur's sitting on, which is like, I get it. They want to have one last John Candy moment. That's not the thing anyone was worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's amazing that you say that, Tom, because I totally forgot that. You're right. All those animals are fucking chained up in a basement uh, that we have we have come to know. And uh, I think the movie hopes that you love them. I would disagree. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there everyone is forgotten so that fucking this little brat can go on one more flight with his fucking eagle that should be a pterodactyl friend. <laughs> I would assume you guys maybe in, to a certain degree would... would- want to entertain discussing this movie in the context of it being a sequel because there's something about what you're talking about how it, how it doesn't tie up every loose end and i think it's a product of something that i noticed when i was watching this movie so i saw this i saw rescuers down under before i saw the, the original rescuers and i remember as a child that when i saw the original rescuers i couldn't get over how how depressing it is how and it is. like it's I, very bleak yeah yeah it's and it's very unsettling in a way that this movie isn't because like even from its opening credits, which play out over these desolate swamps with this very moody, very sorrowful tune, um, the little girl is in a degree of peril that's very, very much like the polar opposite of Cody's, whereas Cody has a lot of agency. He's shown to be very capable, very inventive and very almost like you know he he can match wits and hold his own with his tormentor and um penny from the rescuers is always in this depressing in like endangering peril that you just you get so upset by and everything about her character is upsetting you know she doesn't have parents she's an orphan you know she's from a shitty orphanage and she was taken in by shitty people who want to use her for shitty ends whereas cody has a stable family life goes on badass adventures, gets kidnapped, but holds his own and gets out. And then he has this happy, you know, fly off ending. So like, I felt, I feel, I can't prove this, but I do wonder if there was this degree in the making of the sequel where they were like, we need to make this much more rousing and thrilling and much more of a feel good movie. And in doing so, they just got ahead of themselves and didn't, they, they were too worried. They were too 
focused on delivering you know the thrills and the emotions and they didn't think about the intricacies the deep the connective tissue you know what i mean yeah that that brings up a really good point because there's actually a couple things i thought watching this movie so to your point about the first rescuers i was gonna mention that while i've seen rescuers down under because it was like one of the few movies that we owned when i was really young yes we actually got two copies for a christmas present uh some relatives did not communicate well. So I've seen The Rescuers Done Under probably like two, three hundred times. I had this movie like memorized at some point and was sick of it. Uh, so I think I watched it then once, maybe in college. and I, But I haven't seen it in forever. The Rescuers I saw once when I was maybe nine or ten and have not seen it since. So you could tell me almost anything happens in The Rescuers and I would believe you because I have almost no memory of that movie. So this it, this one really felt to me like it existed on its own plane. At some point, I need to go back and watch The Rescuers. But besides some like vague impressions, and and I definitely saw it after Rescuers Down Under because I remember thinking the seagull's voice was weird. I didn't like it as much. Um, obviously, I know why that is now. So I just I did I did just want to comment like in agreement. Um, uh, we can go in more detail this later. I do think it it does stand alone very well um, while also being a sequel. But we can talk more about that later. But anyway, go ahead. Well, here's here's what's so funny about that. We might as well talk about it now. Because when I watched it this time, mm-hmm. the rescuers felt almost completely inconsequential to the rest of the plot. Mm-hmm. In the fact that – so you have Cody. Like, they don't show up for 15 minutes in. Cody's having his own adventure. And then a, a lot of the stuff that Cody's doing with McLeach is he's meeting these other animals and doing this whole – character thing and it's not till the very end that they're like you know they have this tandem adventure that kind of goes on as they try to get to the kid the rescuers are featured in this movie less than half of the runtime to the point that when i was watching it i'm like you know what i bet you when i go do my research i'm gonna find out that this was supposed to be this australian adventure and they tacked on they were like this isn't long enough this doesn't stretch to a movie or something like that and they were i was gonna find out that they at some point in the production, decided to make this a sequel to The Rescuers based on some original animated story. Because that's watching it like that, that's kind of what it feels like. And that is absolutely not what happened at all. Okay. They, this was always a Rescuers sequel. It feels like that and in a lot of moments, which is why I think it definitely, um, it definitely kind of works as its own movie where they really are these like extra characters that come in to be kind of a, uh, you know, Deus Ex Machina. That's the other thing about all those animals that are left behind. It almost – it felt like to me that they could have been the – like those are going to be his new animal friends. Uh, and they have no contact with our uh, ostensibly main characters in The Rescuers at all. All those other animal sidekicks. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of disagree that they feel totally disconnected because I just read this movie as structured like any kidnapping thriller – uh, like, or even like a Princess Bride style thing where like we see some characters having fun along their path and then at the end of the movie they need to swoop in and, you know, save the day or uh, like what, what's a good kidnapping movie? Like Proof of Life? Like what's what's uh... I, I do just I just want to jump in while we figure out a good kidnapping movie. I don't I don't actually mean that as a criticism. Like I really do love this movie, but watching it now as an adult, it felt like hey, was this always meant to be a Rescuer sequel? Because I could see this being its own thing. But I don't mean that as a criticism. Especially if the kid and the other animals, like if the the animals that are in captivity with him, 
if those other animals figure out a way to escape yeah yeah if it becomes like a a, a great escape this movie could have just veered veered uh, left instead of right, and it could have been a Great Escape style movie for Act Three, where you know all these animals use their their own little their own little tricks to break out of McLeach's camp and and trick him. Yeah, and then when McLeach goes and still lets him go and follows him, then it's those animals that have to maybe do their final breakout and go rescue him. Like yeah. this movie could easily exist without the rescuers. Um, yeah. Not a criticism. It's just a. It's just kind of structured a little bit strangely. But I like how I like how they. I like how everybody has a part to play, though. Like it's a big cast, but it has an almost like Ocean's Eleven style quality to it, where it's like everybody is. All these these clockwork people are needed to make the clockwork. Like it, it, obviously, the movie makes them all fit, but like that's a strength of the movie. I, I, I liked that aspect of it. That even the big dumb John Candy Seagull got to <laughs> got, got to do some stuff. Well, it's funny that structure and John Candy were brought up so closely to each other because all right, there's there's just something <clears throat> again. Well, I feel like we're going to keep pivoting back to I do really love this movie, and maybe that's a lot of that's oh due to you know our theme nostalgia. But so in watching this. It was probably the first time in my life that I was ever like, I feel like large chunks of this movie may have been rewritten or maybe restructured in order to indulge John Candy's shtick, which I began to wonder how much was improvised and how much was written. Um, a lot of Robin Williams' improvisation changed things within Aladdin. So as I was watching this and realizing as an adult how he- John Candy heavy it was, I'm kind of like... Did they just get so much material from John Candy that they changed? They, they were like, well, we obviously need to put all of his material in the middle of this movie. And then you're losing other scenes of character development or other scenes where characters could have acted because it's like, oh, we got to go back to the hospital truck to see what uh, John Candy's up to. You know what I mean? It, it kind of felt like they had once they cast John Candy because they were looking at other candidates for this role. Once they cast John Candy, who was the fucking biggest thing in the world in 1990, like he was in the the other the movie, he was in Home Alone too, which uh, tanked this movie to the ground because uh, they oh, came yeah. out within a couple weeks of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, no, they just to just to just to clarify, no, this opened the same weekend as Home Alone, and just wanted to clarify, but yeah, this opened the same weekend as Home Alone. This opened at number four. Home Alone opened at number one. Yeah, and it was um, apparently a, this a, was some- beat by Rocky Five. Oh, whoa! It made three million dollars its opening weekend. Whoa. Yeah, this movie was a this movie was a big bomb, which I obviously didn't know as a kid. Just to finish the thought, once they cast John Candy, it, it feels like they're like, "Well, we gotta have, we gotta give John Candy from some stuff." So yeah. let's yeah. make him hurt his back and have this whole thing. Which I should say, I actually really love all those hospital scenes. I think they're really funny. Oh, they're they're the hilarious. They're hilarious. I agree. Those were, those were the only outright laughs I had in the movie. I think were the um, like uh, like out loud laughs were all the the dark humor of the hospital scenes, like um, <laughs> the epidermal tissue disruptor, and they and they wheel up a chainsaw. <laughs> I lost it. <laughs> I was laughing really hard at that, which is it, it's just. Uh, it's just what my weakness is when you just put dark comedy in a kid's movie. It's like there was another thing that happened during that scene that I just wanted to quickly throw out there. You know, when you're watching a movie that you watched as a kid and you hear something that you realize you used to say all the time, but it couldn't could never have placed where it came from. Um, 
I was constantly saying as a kid, I'm an American citizen, buddy, in that same inflection. <laughs> That's like, awesome. I'm an American citizen, buddy. Like, I used to say that all the time. And I, I kind of forgot I had, you know, used to, that was like a catchphrase that I used to That's say, adorable. I guess. So watching this movie, when he says that, I'm like, holy shit. I remember how much I used to say that, and that's where this is from. <laughs> guys, yeah, guys, guys, I, I have I have to ask, do you think that this sequence was meant to be a critique of foreign healthcare? Uh yes. But I think that of all sequences. <laughs> in yeah. All movies. <laughs> that's <laughs> very possible. I didn't even think about the that what it's contextually supposed to be. Because I don't think the I don't think the mouse is supposed to be some sort of mad doctor. I think he's just supposed to be a doctor. Everybody seems to trust the mouse. I think what the movie's trying to say is that, and they they kind of show this when they put the shot in the gun. Uh, they're saying that uh, vaccines kill, don't get them. Uh, they are dangerous. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, Amish don't have autism. Jenny McCarthy no. is a hero. Wilbur developed autism shortly after his return from Australia. <laughs> Jenny McCarthy, fun fact co-produced this movie uh, no, don't do that <laughs> <laughs> Jenny McCarthy she, she clearly fun she, fact, this is like seven years before singled out fun fact Jenny McCarthy co-produced 9-11 yep <laughs> by, by giving it a uh, mump shot gave, <laughs> gave the twin towers a mump shot uh, but yeah so that the, uh, John Candy's character in general is a very specific kind of character sort of like Robin Williams uh, genie in Aladdin where if you don't have a gifted comedic performer in the role and you don't have – and the lines aren't like at least sort of funny, it would be diabolically painful to sit through. Yes. Because like I think he's pretty funny, but it's a character that easily could have irritated the fuck out of everybody back in, back in 1990. It, it, do you know what's interesting? Uh, like on that note, before he died, John Candy was slated to appear as a talking turkey in, po- in, an, in a version of Pocahontas that almost got made. There were two roles that were cut from Pocahontas. Gregory Peck was supposed to play the embodiment of the river, and he was going to be called Old Man River. And Pocahontas was going to have a a turkey sidekick, and John Candy was going to voice the turkey. So, given what we know about his performance in Rescuers Down Under, I can only assume what kind of a tonal nightmare he would have brought to what we now know as Pocahontas. <laughs> God. It's nice to know that movie could have been worse. <laughs> it's just, but it's surreal when I read, I was like, ooh, like, when you're considering, you know, what could have been. So, I remember, this reminds me really quickly of uh, me joking that in Cars 2, they were going to have a car funeral for Paul Newman, and I'm pretty oh. sure in Cars, I'm pretty sure in Cars 2, there's a car funeral for Paul Newman. Oh, you don't want to remind kids. That's another hanging implication. Because as soon as kids learn that cars can die, they'll think that all of the cars can die. Chew on that, children. <laughs> Suck on your mortality, seven-year-olds. Buy, yeah. buy, buy our shit. Yeah, your your dad your dad's Kia Sorento had to go live with grandma and grandpa on the farm. Speaking of mortality for kids, guys. I gotta say this about this movie, and I think more movies should do this. More movies should have guns pointed at children. That's all I'm gonna say. Knives pointed at children, guns. The more you're, you're a child, and even an animated movie, is threatened by a girl, barrel of the gun, that's just good cinema for the whole family. Well, yeah, I agree with you completely, and it's funny because going back to discussing the um, 
the differences between Rescuers Down Under 1 and 2. In Rescuers Down Under 1, the antagonist has two pet alligators that are presented as menacing dopes. But in this movie, you know, the very real threat of being eaten by alligators is something that, you know, it's it's the climax of the movie. So it's just so weird how... It's so weird looking at the things that this movie does differently from the first one, and that one just seems so pointed. It's like, oh, you thought Penny was in danger when they made her dig for pirate yeah. treasure? This kid's gonna have knives thrown at his head. Like, it's it's just so perplexing. This movie is psychotic with how little they give a shit about their child protagonist being in danger. <laughs> it is crazy. Like, they show him climbing up a giant cliff face at the beginning he has a gun barrel pointed directly at his face he has knives thrown at him and then he is like almost brutally eaten by alligators with a gleeful antagonist like raising the levers and being all excited about watching this child getting eaten he's clearly an australian kid because none of this phases yeah. him mm-hmm. he's just none like none of it phases like him. he's way more worried about the eagle than himself like he's, he's like we got to get out of here to save the eagle we got to get out of here to save these other animals like he's never like i guess like you could read it in his like sad eyes but like he's never like homesick or anything he's just sort of like i fucking hate this mcleach guy i gotta get out of here like this kid is so (laughs) resilient which i think helps make it fun for kids because kids how like especially throwing kids into i've talked i've talked this before throwing kids into um into a lot of movies and having the kids be in peril isn't appealing to kids. Kids like empowerment fantasies. Kids like strong kids or they like just not having kids at all and just identifying with adults. Like when I was a kid, I identified with Indiana Jones. And then when Short Round came around, I still identified with Indiana Jones. Like kids like empowerment fantasies. So having the kid be a little bit of a badass works towards this movie being a kid's movie. I'm not surprised that I love this as a kid because it treats its child protagonist as a real, as an adult, which is all you want as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that they're they're showing him the same danger that, you're right, Indiana Jones would be in, or Han Solo, or name all the other adult protagonists you saw in movies, which is why you identified with him. Having said that, it is very funny to watch an animated movie and also see them not give a shit in a way that would never happen nowadays of how much danger they're going to put this kid into. It's, it feels like a relic in um, a good way. No, I agree with you. When we're on, when you were on, Peter, when you were discussing how uh, a large part of Cody's character motivations are, I have to save the animals, I have to save the animals. There's a degree of, I was kind of wondering if maybe you guys saw this, there's a degree of an environmentalism theme that seems to be rooted in this movie. Not explicit and I don't think very well developed, but I think it, it's um, a result of the early 90s when we were getting much more serious about protecting the planet as a culture. And, you know, you have McLeach who drives around in this admittedly badass but destructive truck that just mows down trees and rips up the environment spewing gas um and he's killing yeah he's killing animals with wanton disregard and cody is like this pro nature you know he explores it he tames it he befriends it he so he wants to save it so there's kind of this push towards you know this guy, this kid is heroic and this kid is uh, worth rooting for because he's trying to save nature. And I wondered if you guys maybe if you saw that at all, or if you think maybe I'm reaching here. 
I think it's the character's. I think it's the character's grounding. I think that the kid is is right off the bat. This is what actually one of the most interesting things about the movie. The, it's an hour seventeen minutes. It keeps going. It could have been another five ten minutes longer, just like with, with little additions. But I do like how it skips a lot of shit that these kids' movies always think that they have to establish. Like uh, he loves animals. He opens the movie, he's running into the jungle, and it's not that he's um, running into the jungle and getting to learn that animals talk or that he loves animals all of a sudden. Like, he is already knee-deep in his sort of exploration bug, and he's, uh, like, knocking on tree trunks to, like, say hi to the animals. And it's kind of it's kind of amazing for an energy thing, especially compared to the first movie. This is just such, like, a happy, like, fun-having kid, and he's so fearless, and it helps establish the character really quickly to not have that awful, that awful scene that's in every kid's movie... He's like, looks at like a fucking parakeet and he's like, you can talk like, <laughs> like we I all can talk, Cody. We fuck too. <laughs> <laughs> we fuck all the time. You're going to learn some things in the jungle. Yeah. You think you're talking to me, but really you're, you're talking to the grandson of the first rat that came here. I, I the conservation angle I think is important because it's not because it's not just like anti-hunting. This, this asshole, McLeach, is hunting specifically exotic animals to make, um, like, wallets and purses and shit like that. Like, not food for, like, a na- like some tribe. Like, he's hunting for luxury consumer goods, which is a really soft target. Like, <laughs> that's, that's something that, that, like, unless you're the biggest asshole in the world, you hate people who hunt exotic animals. If you, like, if you hunt exotic animals, like, there's a pretty good chance that people want you to be murdered. Like, look at the Cease of the Lion stuff. <laughs> but actually, I did want to mention that something that Tom said about how, um, you know, the 90s were this time when they had all these environmentally themed movies. And you're, I had a note. That this also feels like a relic of its time because it's not just that it's kind of a pro-environmental message, but they don't make a big thing about it because it's like this assumed cultural conversation we were having where caring about the environment was a good thing. Yeah. And so tons of uh, children's media and adult media was focused on it without feeling like they needed to relitigate whether pollution was bad or uh, conservation was good or anything like that. I don't think you can make a movie like this nowadays for children and not have it be seen as some big message movie, which this isn't. It's just saying, hey, obviously we agree on all these things and we're going to make this a theme of the movie. Like when you have a situation where like the 2011 Muppets movie, which had an evil oil baron as the bad guy, gets hours of play on Fox News for demonizing the oil industry. Like I think our media culture makes it so that these types of movies that have like an assumed desire of like stuff that we should all agree on uh don't exist anymore because unfortunately we don't all agree on these things anymore yes yes um i know i hear you completely it's it's something that was uh lightning in a bottle for its time and i yeah i agree the reactionary kind of world that we live in would probably rip this movie apart and it also probably would have debuted at number four of the box office all the same (laughs) yeah yeah it might not have made money if it came out today is what i'm saying guys (laughs) I, I wanted to talk. Peter was was talking about the um, the efficiency of the opening. I re- I really want to talk about the opening of this movie because I, I really agree 
that from the opening credits through, I'd say the like the end of the opening for me is is the point where um, Bernard and Bianca accept the mission and. The key word, again, is just efficiency. Like, this movie just gets into it from the get-go. Like, when we're going back to comparisons to Rescuers 1 and 2, Rescuers 1 has a really long opening credit sequence with the song playing out over all the credits. This one, it's just snap. Zoom across the outback. Awesome, thrilling music. Here's Cody. This is what he does. He talks to animals because he's in touch with nature. You got it? Good. All right, we're moving on. He's fearless. Look at him climb this mountain. Freeze an eagle. He's a good guy. He's a badass. Then we cut to, for me, it's one of the most like visually stunning sequences that was produced in any of the Disney Renaissance films. The The eagle flight sequence is just terrific. Um, the shot of him like flying on water with the eagle behind him, it's incredible. And then you yep. introduce McLeach. You get every reason why I know McLeach is bad. He's You get like the wanted poster, which is just obviously a great visual cue. Then he's an asshole. He kidnaps Cody. We get the Rue Goldberg world of the Rescue Aid Society. We cut to New York. We acquaint ourselves with Bernard and Bianca. We understand the emotional stakes of their relationship. We understand what they do for a living. We don't need to get a long, drawn-out explanation of what the Rescue Aid Society is. It's communicated in a fun little montage. These are mice. They save kids. Great. They accept the mission, and boom. Like, we're out. It's so good. It's so... It's it's storytelling that's streamlined and consistent and cognizant, and I love it. I love it. Do you think that there are conservative mice who spend all their time complaining that the United States mice should not be in the Mice United <laughs> Nations? We didn't kidnap that child. That's an Australian problem. Let him, let him save himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think animals have an inherent goodness that people don't. That could be right. <laughs> I think doubling back, I didn't really talk about my history with this movie or the series at all. Um, yeah, so I uh, this was my favorite movie as a kid. I got, I'm sure we got it as a present for something. But yeah, I was a, I was one of those kids who their favorite thing to do was like sit on the rug and play Legos and watch the you know ten movies that were my favorites. And it was like this and Ghostbusters 2 and Indiana Jones movies and blah, blah, blah. This was a movie that as a kid, I super identified with the lead character, but in the in the sense that like in an aspirational identification. So I was like, I should be more adventurous like Cody. Like, you know, I should get out there more and like see what kind of, uh, you know, fun I can get into. And I loved animals as a kid and I was really, really sensitive to like animal violence. Like I saw a neighbor kick his dog once and I went home like flabbergasted like wh why would anybody do that like a, a dog a dog doesn't hurt anybody a dog is perfect like <laughs> animals are perfect they don't do anything bad like that's what kind of kid i was and uh so i super identified with the lead character i uh your tom's version of the the original is uh, tom's vision of the original is very similar to mine where i didn't watch the original that much because i definitely have seen it before but i didn't watch the original that much because it's sort of dour and dreary but the uh rescuers down under has this sense of like indiana jones-esque adventurism and the, the, the environments are all like well lit in the outback and it's all very epic and it all is shot from a kid's perspective or a mouse's perspective where everything is larger than life. Everything is bigger than the kid. The movie just really targets kids really well. And yeah, this is a movie where I don't know if other people view, view kids movies like this. Um, but when I hear certain sound cues in this movie, 
my nostalgia sort of takes on a um, anatomical effect on me, a, f- a physiological effect on me, where I I have like um, an echo chamber in my head where I'm like, you hear a sound effect and all of a sudden it starts vibrating through you. You're like, holy shit, I remember this. Like I, I, as a little kid and now I'm still very attached to like the texture of, of certain sound cues and certain music cues. And this movie like watching it, uh, it was very hard to distract myself from my nostalgia, but I think that there's a, like, as you guys have seen, there's a lot to talk about despite all the incredible, uh, adoration that I have for this movie. Tom, why don't you, why don't you tell us about your experience with Rescuers Down Under? But okay. So yeah, Rescuers Down Under, as I said, towards the top of the episode, um, I'm pretty sure I got this for a birthday or a Christmas, uh, in my childhood, you know, the white clamshell Disney VHS tapes. And I, you know, like Peter said, I watched it compulsively. I watched it a lot. Um, you know, the fact that I can do like that on cue, like it was probably one of the first like, like funny voices I ever like memorized over and over again. Um, I just, I, I really liked everything about it. I thought it was thrilling. I just, I loved the, the score. I loved the visuals. And <laughs> for years, even when I wasn't watching it, it stuck in my head because my dad, who's, um, he's a big George C. Scott fan. He, even to this day when he has an opportunity whether he's like referring to like our pets or something he sings mcleach's version of home on the range um just for like you know (laughs) just to get the laughs out of anybody because he like he doesn't have a good george c scott voice but he can get a really good gravel on and when he just launches into you know home home on the range where the critters are tied up in chains like he loves doing it and so I always just get these little reminders of this movie because, you know, I clearly watched it so many times that even my family picked up on it. When I was a senior in high school, uh, you know, we all went on this nostalgic kick of like, oh, like, remember all the things we've been pretending not to like to look like cool high school kids? I really miss those things now that I'm about to become an adult. And Rescuers Down Under, I bought. This wasn't a movie that Disney was putting in or out of the vault. It was just available on DVD, so I purchased it and I had it for a couple years. Um, I actually lost it when um, I broke up with my one girlfriend. She, it was one of the things that I didn't get back from her. So I haven't actually had an opportunity to rewatch it until. If you're listening, one girlfriend, <laughs> please give us a call. Mail it. Return the movie. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so basically this today was the first time rewatching it. And much like Peter said, just the cues, you know, it hit you the moments. Yeah. You know, they all came flooding back. I knew, I knew lines before they were even coming. There was even there, but the, the great thing was there was lines that, um, I had actually forgotten about and they were terrific hearing them and being able to kind of like appreciate them again. Like, I think probably the best line in the whole movie is when McLeach lets Cody go with the intent of following him to Marahute's nest. And as he's watching Cody leave from a distance, he looks at Joanna and he goes, I didn't make it all the way through the third grade for nothing. <laughs> and he says it with such yeah. pride. <laughs> and it's just this great undercutting, self-deprecating line that I lost it during. It was, it was so good. I feel the same way as both of you guys. And it's such a it's such a weird movie. Like stuff like I mentioned Hook, I mentioned Ninja Turtles 2, Jurassic Park. Those were all movies that I watched over and over and over and over as a kid, just like this movie. But then I kept watching them periodically throughout my life. This movie is probably the only one I can think of where I watched it hundreds of times and then essentially stopped watching it for 20 plus years. 
So this really was like a warm embrace of of nostalgia where I knew everything, but it was it was like sitting and watching a movie was like a 10 year old version of myself because nothing was fresh in my mind, but everything was instantly familiar. What I realized with this movie and I was piecing things together is there was this real maybe I'm I'm overblowing this, but in the early 90s, there was a couple instances where really iconic movie stars capped their careers off with animated kids fair like this that I think is really, I don't know, notable to a certain degree. Like this was Ava Gabor's last movie. Um, she died five or six years after this came out. They were actually intending to do a third one, but when she died, they scrapped it. And um, I don't know if you recall, but they made a sequel to An American Tale called An American Tale, Five Goes West, where Jimmy Stewart plays um, an old dog sheriff. And that was his final film role as well. So I just think it's kind of remarkable that my first introduction to several of these iconic, you know, actors were in these movies that, you know, were the end of their careers. You know what I mean? And Orson Welles as Unicron in Transformers. There you movie. go. There you go. I was, yeah. yeah. I was waiting for Aaron to jump in with. But uh, yeah, Aaron, you uh, <laughs> I figured you'd jump in with the, the Unicron one because that's. That's really notable. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's one of those. those and I fucking love that movie. <laughs> that's one of those uh, examples of um, his utter disdain for the script weirdly working for the movie. <laughs> um, but yeah. I, the, yeah. I play a toy that fights other toys. Orson Welles. Yes. <laughs> yes. So the I think that's a really great point. But I think that this must have been doing an animated movie a particularly animated kids movie must have been a really easy payday for actors who are you know in their golden years and are kind of fading out and because you don't have to be on set like being on set and like doing physical performances like that has to be fucking exhausting in this sort of production depending on how it's animated you might record your voice and then they animate around how your performance is which is for an actor the easiest job you're ever going to get. Like you're not even matching to voice. You're not even matching like the tone of your character. They're matching the character to the tone of you. Yeah. And it ties into a bit where you were saying earlier with perplexing you, like, you know, scene in Cars 2 where they give Paul and human's character a car funeral. You know, it's like, we're, I'm, it's lucky that they did cancel rescuers down under three, because I really don't know how I would have like enjoyed a movie at all where it's like the opening scene is, Oh, Bianca's dead. So I'm just going to go on an adventure by myself now. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be grim. That'd be very grim. You know what's funny? I just realized Hmm. one of the reasons that I love this movie as a kid was because even as a kid, I didn't like a lot of the Disney movies because I hated musicals even as a kid. And there's no... Yep. No songs I hated kids singing about... I hated, you know, people singing about their feelings as a kid. There are a few exceptions to that. Um, I did love American Tale. I imagine American Tale has... I remember, like, there are no cats in America in the first one, but, like, I imagine American Tale 2 has plenty of of songs in it. But this movie stuck around a lot longer, I think, because there's no, there was no uh, singing in it. Yeah, Peter hates joy. Yeah, I resent it. Thing that everyone listening to our podcast should know. I got two. I got two kind of things I want to mention, and then we might want to move on to some final thoughts here. Um, Sure. One, I think that is interesting to note that – so this movie started production in 1986, which is the year that Crocodile Dundee came out, when America was going through an Australian phase. What's kind of funny, and I think part of the reason that the movie didn't do well, is that it takes fucking four years to make a Disney animated movie. So by the time 1990 hit – 
no one gave a shit in America about Australia anymore. <laughs> but I still think that that's kind of funny that the reason that they wanted to do this movie is they're like, holy shit, guys. Australia is huge. People love the band Men at Work. People love <laughs> uh, Crocodile Dundee. This is never going away. This is the biggest fad we're ever going to have. And then, like, kind of forgetting. So, let's hope it's still around four years from now. It's just kind of weird to, like, make a movie that takes this long uh, for the production to happen to be based on a fad. Now, I know any fad that happens, no one knows how fleeting it is, but it still feels a little weird. I mean, it it works great for the movie, but that's why they decided to make this Australia-based. I wasn't aware of that. That's kind of, it's kind of funny knowing that now, but oh, I don't know. I mean, well, I get what you mean. In terms of the zeitgeist, you can't hedge that many bets knowing how fast it could recede. Yeah. And four years is just such a long time. You know, it's like if someone, when the Macarena came out, someone's like, all right, let's make a whole Macarena-based Disney movie. Uh, we're going to get this out early 2000. Ugh. Everyone's still going to be really into this dance. Let's the- hope. Macarena-based economy basically crashed, just like the Mambo Number no. Five economy, um, the Snap Bracelet economy, the Swing economy, the Swing, yeah, the Swing economy, the the Ska economy crash. What other? Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm sitting here, I'm trying to think because here's the thing, like it's one of those examples of where when you're put in a situation where it's like, oh, for years I've known examples of this topic, but now you're now you're like you're in the moment. It's like I can't name a single. But I'm trying to think of other big fad movies where it was like, we're going to cash in on this. And then by the time it came out, it was like, nope, the ship has sailed and, you know, you missed out. Lenny Reifenstahl's follow-up to Triumph of the Will. <laughs> well, <laughs> the will never stops, baby. Uh, the the willennium. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The willennium. Yeah. That's gold. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Because it's, it's normally when they miss the fad... They miss it by, like, a few months. It's weird to miss it by, like, three years. Right. Do you think while they... Because while they were still making the movie, they knew that no one gave a shit about Australia. So do you think, like, 1988, 1989, they're like, oh, fuck. I hope it comes back around. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe it's why we got so much John Candy. They were like, oh, just amp up him. (laughs) Distracting them from the the Australian stuff. Yeah. We we can't rely on boomerangs as planned. Yeah, we need John Candy. <laughs> well, maybe that's why there are so few actual people with Australian accents in the movie. Like, not even all yeah. the not even all the animals have Australian accents. The only ones that do are um, who's the who's the the desert rat that- Jake. Jake yes. has an accent, and then the desert the rat the kangaroo mouse. Kangaroo mouse. Have oh. show some respect. Oh, Desert I'm fucking rat. sorry. I didn't have the. That's like a slur. Term in front. That's of like me. a slur for a kangaroo mouse. <laughs> get woke, Peter. Oh, I gotta get woke. Yeah. I can't believe I, I. Maybe read some Roger Ebert reviews. It's just one kangaroo rat is sitting at home and just turned off his his Bluetooth speaker. Uh, Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. He's actually using an old Walkman that was discarded. Oh, well, this is real fucking sad. This is a sad state of affairs. (laughs) (laughs) Once once Trump was elected, now the slurs come out. (laughs) Trump was elected. These Americans used to love us. I was going to say, you're you're right. You're absolutely right, though. Like, Cody and Cody is the least convincing Australian child ever. 
McLeach got an Irish name, got a gruff American accent. I don't know what what the hell he's supposed to be. Um, I think he's like an international asshole. Like probably. he goes to different continents and he's like, huh, I'm gonna fuck shit up here too. I would love that on a business card, honestly. Just Tom Peeler, international asshole. That'd be the best. <laughs> You mostly just go to Italy and talk about the pizza pie. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's only funny to Peter and me from last week's episode. Um, Tom, you'll get it when it comes out. I give, uh, I give him a polite laugh because I was just like, oh, he, he seemed really into it. <laughs> I'm sure this is something. I, I will say I don't really understand why McLeach is poaching because he keeps talking about all the money he wants. He lives in a cave. I'm not sure what he's doing with all the money that he's getting. He's he's uh he's he's clearly American because he's poor, but he, he thinks rich. Like he yeah. he's, he's like, investing uh, it all into that truck. I don't know yeah. if if he were American, he would have a lot more respect for that eagle. Uh, he's not very American to me. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But a true American would know how to make money off of the eagle. It's true. It's also true. Yeah. <laughs> There's two kangaroos. There's two kangaroos, and they both have very thick Australian accents. There's a koala who has like a fancy Australian accent. But yeah, it's just like wait. fancy. Okay. Well, he's like, oh, mate, uh, I'm classy. Can we talk about know. that? Can we talk about that whole room of asshole animals? Like the kangaroo's a decent guy. Okay. Yeah. Frank is the most irritating fucking character. Uh, in- uh. Oh my god. Yeah. Can we have so a general? Can we have a general forum on the animal sidekicks in this movie? Because I was thinking about Joanna and how I thought Joanna was so much funnier as a kid, and now I'm just sitting here thinking like, okay, this is post Little Mermaid where Ursula had floats and jetsome. So Joanna was obviously put in there. It's like bad guy needs to have animal sidekick, and so this is pre Iago, pre the hyenas. You know what I mean? Like where did Joanna and, and Frank fit in the legacy of a uh, Disney Renaissance animal sidekicks? You know. <laughs> I think Joanna is a million times better than Frank. Frank is the <laughs> fucking worst. And I used to love him as a kid. Th- so, that was the one, like, nostalgia, like, kicked me in the nuts and was like, this is the worst. <laughs> Why were, did you like you this? You were wrong. <laughs> so this movie has, has respect basically just for... Um, mammals. If you're a mammal, like you are chill. But if you're, but like Joanna is just like a betrayer of all animal kind. And I wrote down in my notes, uh, Joanna is the Vichy French of animals because she, she, because she, she helps, she's an animal that helps McLeach hunt other animals. She's like, but it benefits me. I get the eggs. Like, uh, you know, I don't want to end up as a wallet. Uh, and I, I definitely still want the eggs. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm only, I'm only a whatever, a salamander. What the hell is Joanna? Uh, I don't even Komodo know. Komodo dragon? I, th- I think I she's think... supposed to be like a Komodo dragon or maybe a mutated Gila monster, Gila monster. <laughs> Maybe, maybe I could see that. But yeah, I think Komodo Dragon, but those are nowhere near Australia. But yeah, yeah, but he's an international asshole. Remember, so he might have already murdered his way through Madagascar and through Africa, and then worked his way up the coast into Europe, and then eventually made its his way back to. So you're saying that he illegally imported an animal into the country? I, you know, it sounds pretty crazy, but I think that his morals might be a little flexible. So we're just going to character assassinate people now? I get. I don't know. I would literally assassinate <sighs> McLeach. It's a monitor. She's a monitor lizard. I th- monitor lizard. Let me look up. Sure, Mc- she is movie. Sure, she is. Let me I'm monitoring that lizard. Seems like real dick. 
So mo- she's clearly an exaggerated <laughs> monitor lizard in comparison to the Stay, real ones. That's I'm, staying in. Uh, it's just completely. You you just sent the train right off the tracks, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Apparently, she's a monitor lizard. From what I'm reading here. Oh, God. Sure. I can't believe this movie that's an hour and 17 minutes. We never even got into scenes. Which I yeah, just we got we to okay. keep it going. One thing that uh, that I wanted to talk about just really quick, and then we can talk about scenes and final thoughts all in one one big blast. Sure. So this was the first uh, Disney theatrical sequel. They didn't make another one until Fantasia 2000 and then Winnie the Pooh uh, in 2011. Those are the only three. Uh, no, no, no. Return to Return to Neverland got a theatrical release. Yeah, I think you're right. No, I think you're right. Yep. It was not listed in the theatrical sequels on Wikipedia. I think you might be right. That's what happens when you trust Wikipedia. Wide release date, February 15th, 2002. So, so four, four movies. And the the next one was Fantasia 2000 was kind of like, I, I wouldn't call that necessarily sequel since that was always kind of fitting with uh, Walt Disney's vision of like doing new iterations of it. But so you kind of have three real sequels in, in some ways. Um, okay. Is it good? Is Fantasia 2000 good? Oh, it's so, it's so fucking good. Okay. Absolutely see it. And Winnie the Pooh from 2011, which again, short stories, the, the, you know, they just kind of made new stories. Uh, it's also really good if you haven't seen Winnie Pooh from 2011. I will say as much as I like this movie and it kind of sucks. It did poorly at the box office. I am happy it did poorly because after this sequel did bad, they decided to not try to make sequels to all their properties and re- release them theatrically and instead just dump them straight to DVD. I think if this movie does good, we end up with a lot of shitty sequels instead of a lot of the good original movies that we end up making or, or that we end up seeing. Well, I could see I could see your viewpoint. Yeah, I could see that. But what I my question is. If this had succeeded and we had gotten movies like The Return of Jafar and Pocahontas 2, The New World, wouldn't – isn't there a possibility that if they had been theatrically released like this was that they would have been not the steaming piles of shit that we've come to know them as today? Because I've seen – Well, maybe because it, it feels like they put like Return to Jafar – the first one that I can remember was Return of Jafar. Yes. Which I remembered liking and I remembered liking the other Aladdin sequel – as well, but I think we can also agree that like Return of Jafar and Aladdin and the King of Thieves or whatever it was is still not as good. And if those would have made a hundred million dollars at the box office, I don't know. Obviously, there was less care put into them once they started to be in a whole different division. I don't know. I think at some point you start doing a bunch of theatrical Beauty and the Beast sequels and. You, you're just going to end up with a with a terrible product. I like that they've kind of – and this kind of goes for Pixar in a lot of ways too. I think sequels in general are better in this era because people put a lot of care into them that they're not – there's always a cash-in component. Mm-hmm. But in the 90s and the 80s, sequels really were like, let's strike where the why the – let's strike while the iron is hot and make as much money as we can. And I'm kind of glad that Disney movies – in a lot of ways, stayed out of that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and obviously that was a that was a move to to get away from the straight to video sequels, the cash in sequels, and have every Disney release be an event movie. Return to Jafar was never supposed to be like a massive event 
uh, the like like uh, Little Mermaid or whatever. Mostly in terms of marketing push, they just knew that people would buy it. <laughs> but I'm kind of curious. Like I said earlier, is that if the Rescuers Down Under had set a different kind of standard, would we have gotten a Return of Jafar that was pushed? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I guess the reason I don't think so is because I don't have confidence with the motivations behind sequels of the era. Okay, that makes sense. I'm not saying that all sequels nowadays are good, but it feels like people understand that they're not properties to be milked. It feels like at the very least they have more care of their properties and know, hey, this franchise can be good for 20 years until unless we start making a bunch of city shitty sequels that are trying to strike in the short term. So mm. I think you could still say, hey, these are business decisions and they're still trying to make money. But I will always like a business decision that's, hey, let's make quality movies so that people still want to watch these movies for 20 years over. Let's throw out some shit and slap Aladdin's name on it and everyone's going to want to buy it. Before no one cares about genies anymore. True. It's true. True. I think I'm just coming at it from the kind of the the mindset that movies are produced in nowadays. That I like, you know, you know what I mean. Like where we live in franchise serialized franchise storytelling. So I kind of I'm I'm putting my mindset into that era and wondering if that would have happened. But you're right, and I'm not thinking about it in the context of the era. Yeah. If anything, this feels like an anomaly of how good it was. Yeah, I agree. Um, so you guys want to kind of move to let's move to our final thoughts. Yeah, final thoughts, and in final thoughts, if you have any scenes anyone wants to call out, you can do that too. Just quick. I, my, I guess my final thought would just be that uh, this movie held up a lot since I was a kid. Uh, the nostalgia factor was nice because uh, I was able to kind of move past that, but it still gave me a little bit of a rush. Uh, it was like a old seeing an old friend, but. Uh, I didn't have that sort of knocking feeling that happens like when you watch, say, a Space Jam where all of a sudden you're like, this is not as good as I remember. Um, still has some gorgeous animation. Uh, most of the animation has aged really well. The only stuff that hasn't is in New York and uh, in Sydney. There's some digital backgrounds and some digital animation that is really, really ugly because it looks like sub-reboot level, like pre-PS1 level. <laughs> um, it's really, really ugly. And uh, I wish they had just had traditional animation. I'm not sure why they decided that that was the outlet for it. But overall, it has a really nice color palette and it's it's fun, it's short, it's brisk. The only thing I would want is a few more emotional, connect, emotional dead, uh, loose ends tied up. You know, it's funny about uh, what I read about the flying scenes in IMDb is that they apparently were inspired by Miyazaki films because they wanted to recreate the yeah. the, the splendor of the scenes of flight from those movies. And in watching, I, like, I watched the movie before I read that IMDb trivia, but I was just like, ooh, like, yeah, these are rough. So it's like, you guys are, <laughs> you guys are aiming for something, but uh, eh. Yeah, I think like the animation is good. It's the it's like specific aspects of how they're compositing like the backgrounds that looks a little rough that like Miyazaki would never cut that corner, even if it did cost him an extra six months. Yeah, for me. So in rewatching this movie with my 28 year old eyes, I think I can summarize that it's not consistent, but it is never boring. Um, you have a really excellent opening and then the entire middle is filled with a lot of take it or leave it material you get a lot of you know drawn out slapstick 
tonal mismatches, you know, stakes that feel uncomfortable. And then you get a really great peril-filled, you know, thrilling ending that caps it off. And it's all done very quickly. It's not too long. Arguably, it's maybe too short, but overall, it's entertaining. And I think that's why it's endeared itself to me, because I just always remember that it's just a fun, exciting, you know, entertaining hour and 17 minutes of my life. You know, that's not terribly offensive. So I guess, you know, when you're examining something <laughs> from the era that you, the era that it comes from, when you do rewatch certain things and you're just like, oh, like I liked this. Like the fact that this holds up enough that you at least can say, I think I, like I can see why I liked it. Um, that's what endears itself to me. And um, just as I said earlier, if I had a standout moment, it's absolutely the scene where he frees Marahute and they fly together. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It deserves to be on any glorious highlight reel along with Ariel's peeking out of the water in Little Mermaid or just the Be Our Guest sequence of Beauty and the Beast. It's, it's stunning. It's beautifully drawn and I love it. Yeah, that's a beautiful capper, Tom. Yeah, so this is our last um, entry in our 90s Nostalgia Month. Um, I can guarantee Peter and I, we have some other ideas for um, for kind of nostalgia-themed months where we go back and watch stuff that we haven't seen in a long time and kind of see uh, what we think about it now. And because it's such a – we saw so many movies as a kid and you move on, you watch some of them over and over and some kind of fall by the wayside. I think Peter and I would both agree that this is the only movie that we watched this month that's almost like a rousing success. Like, I I can recommend this movie with almost no reservations whatsoever. Actually, scratch that. I, no reservations. I mean, it's not a perfect movie. There are some things that are sort of odd choices or, oh, I wish they would have done that. But, you know, it is – it's not like the other ones where there is some, some serious like, okay, yeah, Robin Hood can be fun, but you got to watch out for the rape scene or <laughs> or anything like that. To put it in a very simplistic way, like almost all the other movies that I watched this month, my star rating on Letterboxd changed from what I had rated it based on my memory of it. And seeing through my adult eyes uh, reflected back. Uh, this one didn't. This was exactly as entertaining as I remembered. Uh, like I said, my two-year-old loved it. You know, I'm excited to do more months like this. And I hope that more of the movies that we watch uh, end up on the Rescuers Down Under side than the, say, Fools Rush In or even Robin Hood Prince of Thieves side. Where it's just a almost like a warm hug from a younger version of yourself. That's a great cap around the month because I, I think that there's nothing better than – because nostalgia is sort of this um, this this cloud-like uh, substance that, that can sort of like wash over you and you can sort of like walk through it and experience it and have this, this – yeah, this like memorable experience but – very often it can cloud your your judgment and i think this month we've done a good job of both uh not over course correcting nostalgia but also being a little bit more uh judicious in how we're engaging with the art and i think that we're going to do more months like this because there's a lot of pics of stuff that we loved as kids that you know have been kind of just sitting there and i'm wondering if they're sitting there for a reason well also just a bunch of stuff we want to watch again like 
So, yes. Yeah, so, thank you so much, Tom, for coming on. I know, man, we, we just had a great conversation with you. Uh, we can't wait to have you back on at some point in the future to the point that we went uh, super long and still didn't get to a ton of different areas in the movie because, uh, yeah, there were so much fun topics to discuss. So, Tom, why don't you tell our listeners uh, specifically where they can find you? We'll put all the stuff in the show notes as well. But where can they find all the work that you talked about? Okay. Uh, well, I just want to obviously off the top, thank you guys again for having me on. Uh, this was a blast. I haven't gotten to do something as you know casual and relaxed and in-depth in a while. So thank you so much for giving me an opportunity for to do this. And anytime you need help, just give me a ring. Uh, so, okay. So, yeah. I yeah, plan, to, plan to be back next year. Eh. My work can be found at sycamorestreetstudios.com. That's spelled out in full everything. And there you can find info on the new films I'm making. The most recent was a kind of dark, somewhat horror, somewhat comedy called You Can't Run about a jogger who finds a series of grisly horrors during his morning exercises. I also produce a once a month, I'm trying to increase the output, but a once a month YouTube show called Mise on Game, where I study video game cutscenes from a filmmaking point of view, because cutscenes, they're basically movies. So I, I ask myself, are they made well? And are they benefiting the experience of the game itself in being told? So I think it's really interesting to me. It's kind of like every frame of painting, but with video games. So if that sounds like it would tickle your fancy, there's that. Uh, we also have our dormant podcast that I host with my friends and Dissolve Lurkers, uh, Frank Marshall and John Titchener. Hopefully we can get that back off the ground soon. But yeah, Sycamore Street Studios, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. And I'm on the Dissolve every day, slacking off and talking movies with tons of awesome people like Pete and Aaron. Thank you so much. Yeah, definitely check out. Again, I need to check out more of that stuff, but your video game series is fantastic, and, I, and I'm and i sure the rest of the stuff um, meets that level of quality. So definitely check that stuff out if you're listening. Real quick. Um, that's a weird way. To, that's sorry. a super weird way to say that. If you're listening, <laughs> if how you're, else would you hear you, these words? They're listening. They're all, they're all listening. Yeah. Um, real quick. They're definitely listening if they heard me say the first part. <laughs> Real quick, you can you can cut this or you can you can compound it. I just wanted to expand that the the newest episode of Mizan Game actually focuses on Final Fantasy X, and specifically it focuses on one of the game's more notorious cutscenes. Um, so if you're a fan of Final Fantasy, you might know what I'm talking about, but it's really good for getting into the kind of grand CGI cutscenes that that series has been famous for. We're going to quickly run through what our next month is going to be, and uh, then we're going to give you a quick list of episodes in no order. Because I forgot what the order is, and I apparently didn't write it down anywhere. Uh, plus, we're also it's it's December. There's going to be a lot of holiday stuff that Peter and I are working through for scheduling. So you will get all the episodes, but we're not sure when we're recording them yet or what order we are. So uh, next month is uh, Christmas horror, uh, returning us to a theme that we love so dearly, which is Christmas. It is horror. That was a joke. <laughs> yeah. Everyone. The, the, uh, Did you say, get it? It was pretty deep, I think, what you were doing there. So uh, next month, we're going to be doing Silent Night, Deadly Night with Marcus Jones of Jean-Paul Van Damme and Crush Celluloid, both the website and the, the podcast. Uh, very excited to have him on. Uh, I actually just was on uh, Jean-Paul Van Damme. So if you aren't sick of hearing my fucking voice yet, then you can uh, listen to me on uh, on that. 
And then we've got Krampus, which will just be an Aaron and me episode. And then after that, we've got Black Christmas, which is uh, going to be with uh, returning guest Joseph Finn. Uh, Very excited to have Joseph Finn back. Uh, He's uh, the head of the podcast. Try it. You'll like it. Uh, And then after that, we're going to be doing New Year's Evil, which will be just Aaron and I again. And obviously that order is subject subject to change. Yep. And then we already have next uh, January planned. Um, We're actually going to be releasing a special episode the second week in January. And then we're going to go on to our uh, our our new theme. We 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 had we had up to December planned for a long time. Uh, I think since like August and now we're starting to get into planning next year and we're really excited about all this stuff. We're really excited about all the movies we're going to be able to talk about and the guests we're going to have on. So stay tuned for more information as we get closer to 2017. Um, And then 2018, the world will be a desert. So why plan that far ahead? Why even bother? (laughs) I'm surprised you guys even planned as far as a month from now. I mean, ugh. Yeah, we're going to plan up to Inauguration Day and no further. Then everything's tentative. One week at a time, guys. Uh, So, so yeah. So, Tom, thank you so much again for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. Uh, We'll we'll have you back uh, very soon. And good night, everyone. We'll see you for Christmas Horror next week. Yep. Good night, everyone. Take care. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. If you want to get in touch with us, please reach out to us at either our website, WLTWpodcast.com, or our Facebook group, facebook.com backslash We Love to Watch. And uh, yeah, reach out to us. Give us some feedback, give us some support, uh, suggest movies for the show, all that. We are also available on SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.